sovereign. The title of this morning's message is The Sovereignty of God. You know, as we go through this world, it's natural for us to be concerned about the events of this world. There are so many things in this world that should trouble our hearts if you're a believer. Even if you're not yet a Christian today and you're looking at the course of this world, it's natural for you to be concerned. Today, I want you to see that God is completely in control over world history. There are things that happen in this world that we can't understand why a good God would ordain or allow or use. But the Bible's clear. God is completely in control. And we're going to see that today. The second thing we're going to see today is that God is not only control over world history, he is in control over his own people. Meaning if you are part of his people, the one people of God, and that includes true believers in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, as well as the New Testament church. If you're part of God's people, he is in control of your life in, with special grace, in, a, in the most gracious and amazing way. He's in control of your life, and that's a good thing to know. And all of this is for his glory. So let's dive into God's word. If you have God's word, meet me now in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of Isaiah 45 and then verses 22 to 23. Okay? So we're going to look at the first seven verses, and then we're going to go ahead and look at verses 22 to 23. Today, Isaiah 45 is prophesying events that would happen 150 years after this prophecy is given. So, in other words, Isaiah is prophesying and predicting and looking forward to events 150 years ahead. To prophesy means to speak of something that will happen in the future. And specifically, we're talking about Cyrus, the Persian conqueror. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can read about Cyrus. This is a real historical figure. Real historical figure. If you paid attention in your high school world history class. And if you remember, you would have read about Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Conqueror. Well, 150 years prior to Cyrus coming into full power, and some of these events are predicted, the Bible already prophesied Cyrus's life before he was ever born. We can see God's sovereignty in world history the dates that I have up here are approximate. And if I don't have a date, it's because it's highly debated, okay? In Isaiah chapter 40, a previous passage that we preached on, it predicts Judah falling under Babylonian captivity. Then in Isaiah 44 to 45, which is the passage we're looking at today, Isaiah 45, it predicts God using a real historical figure, Cyrus, to bring Judah back into Jerusalem. And then in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus gives the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's approximately 538 BC. Then in Ezra chapter 6, we see the completion of the temple in 516 BC, approximately. And then in Nehemiah 8, the people of God, Judah, physically gather in Jerusalem to hear the word of God in 445 B.C. And so these events are predicted 150 years ahead. And that leads us to our first point this morning. In the first three verses of Isaiah, that should be Isaiah 45. 
apologize. I'm preaching in place of Pastor Terrence this week. So that's why you're only getting seven verses. <laughs> that should be Isaiah 45, 1 to 3. That's my typo up there. In Isaiah 45, 1 to 3, we see point number one, God is sovereign over his story, history. You've heard this before. The history is really his story. He's sovereign over history. If we begin in Isaiah 44, verse 28, which I did not prepare a slide for you, it says this, he says of, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Cyrus is a pagan, and I can say that with grace and love. Cyrus had every opportunity to turn to God. He knew that God was using him. Yet it says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. How can an unbeliever be your shepherd? Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. But God, we read about Cyrus as this conqueror, this person who by chance became powerful, one of the most powerful, most feared conquerors, conquerors in world history. Yeah, but 150 years before he was born, God says, he's my tool. Urban Dictionary has a definition for a tool. <laughs> Someone who is foolishly used. A more better term would be instrument, right? More classy, less colloquial. Cyrus is an instrument of God. He knows he's being used by God, yet he never comes to believe. The question of can God use pagan rulers, it is yes. Now we, that locates us in our passage. Verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed. Stop right there. You're unbelieving, Cyrus. How can you be anointed? Oh, yeah, we got to explain that. Thus says the Lord, his anointed to Cyrus whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations. Well, that's what we read about in history. Before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. You see this word anointed in the Hebrew? When you transliterate and pronounce it, anointed is actually pronounced as Messiah. Now, we know that the true anointed of Israel is Jesus Christ. But here, long before Christ comes, the Lord Yahweh refers to Cyrus as his anointed. In other words, Cyrus, a non-believer, is Israel's temporary Messiah, deliverer, in a physical sense. Cyrus would deliver God's people from Babylonian captivity. He's not their spiritual delivery, deliverer. He does not deliver Judah from their sins. But he does deliver God's people from Babylonian captivity. Now, if you remember, it's God that brought his people into Babylonian captivity in the first place because they were disobedient. So you see God completely sovereign over history. Judah is disobedient, so he allows his people. It's he, he's the one that gives Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's like, okay, I'm done with there. I'm going to move my people back to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to use Neb. I'm using Cyrus now. 
You see that God is completely sovereign over kings and rulers. But we know that this word anointed points towards a redeemer king. That putting the people back into Judah had a deeper purpose. Putting the people back into Jerusalem would prepare the ground for one day the Messiah to come from Judah. But here, it's an unbelieving king that God uses. This proves to you and me that God is not only sovereign over Israel in the Old Testament, but God is the God of the world, and God is the God of every human being, even pagan kings like Cyrus. God is sovereign over all kings and rulers. As Christians, sometimes we can't comprehend why God would use evil men to do his will. And because we're finite, we can't grasp his infinite plans, but this passage shows us to surrender to God, to trust him. You see, Cyrus was not a believer in the God of Israel, but nonetheless, it says he was anointed. And notice how God's controlling him. He is literally a tool in the hands of God. Cyrus, it says, whose right hand I, God, have grasped. The idea of one's right hand is an expression that communicates election, choosing, and fellowship. So there's a fellowship, not a saving fellowship, but a type of fellowship where there's a relationship where Cyrus understands that Yahweh's using him. And God knows, obviously, that he's using and grasping and controlling his right hand. This relationship simply meant that Cyrus was set apart by God to accomplish God's special purpose, not that Cyrus had a saving relationship with God. Now, it says specifically what Cyrus would do. Cyrus had been grasped by God to subdue nations. Literally, he would put nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now, these words perfectly describe Cyrus's conquest and his reign. If you read about Cyrus in secular non-Christian history books, it will describe Cyrus as one who crushed the nations. He crushed kings. So you see how the biblical language is to subdue, means to put under, He crushed kings. No gates could be closed on him. No city gates could be closed to Cyrus. No alliances could stop Cyrus the conqueror. Cyrus's expeditions established Persia as the sole power in the Middle East for the next 200 years until the coming of who? Alexander the not-so-great, right? Because once again, that's part of God's plan. Alexander the Great. Cyrus conquered Midian and the Lydian Empire, the Assyrians, when he took Babylon, and he took the Assyrian capital. So from the eyes of man, man, we read about Cyrus being uncontrollable, and we even read about Alexander the Great, and we just look at that, and then the rising of the Roman Empire, and we're like, wow, look at who's powerful But as biblical students, you look in the Old Testament and you realize God's the one moving nations. That should do something to us. That should cause us to worship God. The one who founded the Persian Empire is the God of Israel. The one who established the Persian Empire is not 
Persia. But God. We continue in verse 2. It says, but I will go before you, God says, and level the exalted places. In other words, 150 years before Cyrus the Conqueror comes into power, God's saying, I will go before you. God, you always go before us. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Cyrus, you better know who you're working for. Ironically, Israel often forgets God. Remember the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. So easily Israel forgets. Judah, the southern kingdom, so easily they forget. But God tells Cyrus, you will not forget who you're working for. It is the God of Israel who calls you by name. You see, God is clearly in control here. When Cyrus arrives at the city by the path and the road that God has paid for him, Cyrus will, will have the defenses already fallen and broken. And the treasures of the city is literally laid out for him to take. This is all prepared by Yahweh. Now, historians say that Babylon, this is what historians say about Babylon. They say that Babylon was guarded by hundreds of bronze gates. Thus, God made it easy for Cyrus to cut through the defense of Babylon. One famous historian notes that all the inner gates to the city were left open. Now, how does that happen? How on earth do you enter into Babylon to attack the city and all the inner gates are left open? There was easy access to the palace and all the hidden and hoarded treasures of Babylon. Now we know if you read enough of the Old Testament, you can see that's how our God works. You walk in and Cyrus is like, no way. It's like Yahweh. <laughs> when it says that you know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. That's like Cyrus, before he's even born, God's like, I call you, I raise you up, Cyrus, to do my work. That why, God, would you use me? so that you would know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, here's what Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, let me read this into your hearing. It tells us that Cyrus knew about the prophecy given to him, and it tells us that Cyrus was well aware, he knew the God of Israel had given him commission to have dominion. So if anybody ever asked, how can we prove that Cyrus knew that Yahweh was using him. Look at Ezra. Ezra chapter 2, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, that's Yahweh, okay? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What if Cyrus knew? What if God actually somehow told him, Cyrus, the only reason why you're leveling all these nations is just for my people, so that my house would be built in the city of David, which is in Judah. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Right, This is Cyrus 
telling, it, telling Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with the silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You see, it's ironic that Cyrus never personally came to worship God because Cyrus is basically telling God's people, I exist for you. I'm a tool used by your God. Why don't you believe in your God, Judah? I know what my job is, and here's all the resources that you need, and you will be protected, and this is what you need to rebuild your temple. You see, Cyrus knew that he was being used by God. Why? Leads us to point number two, for the sake of his people, for the sake of God's people. Point number two is that God is sovereign over his people. So not only is God sovereign over his story, history, but God is completely sovereign over his own chosen people. You see, God blessed Cyrus for the sake of God's elect. If you notice verse four, it says, for the sake of my servant Jacob, that's Israel, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is God speaking to Cyrus. For the sake of my servant Jacob, for the sake of Israel, my elect, I call you Cyrus by name. And I name you. Your mama didn't name you. I named you. Though you do not know me. And who are, who are you, God? I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Right? But Ezra tells us that Cyrus knew he was being used by God. So this here we interpret as, you don't know me in a saving way, but I'm using you to save my people. You don't know me, Cyrus, in a saving way, but I'm going to raise you up and equip you. Now, Jacob here, as I mentioned, it refers to Israel. You see, God promised that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. And that would lead into Jacob's descendants and Israel, Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And God promised that the Messiah later would be a, a son of David. And therefore, God had to deliver Abraham's descendants. He wasn't forced to, but he promised to. God will keep his word. God says to Abraham, out of all the people on this earth, I choose you, Abraham, that your descendants out of your descendants will come the Messiah, the true deliverer of my people, the Redeemer. And Abraham's descendants become Israel. And specifically, it would be a greater son of David. That would be the Redeemer King. And David is from what tribe, beloved? Judah. And what is the city of David again? Jerusalem. So Cyrus's job is to get God's people now back into Judah, back into Jerusalem. Why? What happens to you when you get too assimilated into the world and you forget that you're a foreigner, that you're a citizen of heaven? You become worldly, right? What happens if God says, my Messiah is going to come out of Judah, but I'm going to allow Judah to continue to be under the, 
Babylonians. And then later, I'll allow them to be in the Assyrians, but no temple, no establishment of Israel back in their homeland, no formal worship services. After a while, what happens to the identity of the Messiah's people? What happens to Israel? They become assimilated into the people of the land, and they become no different. They're no longer set apart. You see, the reason why Cyrus brings God's people back into Judah, back into the city of David, is so that the remnant would be able to worship God. There would be a rebuilt temple. The word of God would be proclaimed in Nehemiah 8, and the religious identity of God's remnant would be maintained until Jesus is born. When the Messiah comes, then it's not gather in Jerusalem. It's not bring people back into Judah. It is disperse, scatter, and bring the message of the Messiah to the nations. You see, so there is a point in history where God needs to establish Judah. And so that's why in verses 4 to 5 it says, for the sake of my servant Jacob, for the sake of Israel my chosen, that's why I'm using you. I need to establish you so that a son of David, a greater son of David, can come out of Judah with the identity of God's people being restored and kept. You see, when it says, when it says God strengthens and equips, this word equip or strengthen, depending on your translation, it means to gird. And the word is actually in the Hebrew imperfect, imperfect, meaning continuous action. That means that Cyrus is God's continual tool. At every point in Cyrus's life, God continues to strengthen and gird him up and equip him. It's like, okay, Cyrus, I'm going to gird you up, put you here, I'm going to put you, I'm going to use you here. But world historians are ignorant, thinking that this is all Cyrus and his power. No idea to the evangelical mind of what reality is. And why does God do all of this? One, he shows us that he's sovereign over history, which is his story. He shows us that he's sovereign over his people. The reason why he's sovereign over history in this case is to deliver his people. And all of it leads to point number three, God alone will receive all glory. You could say he's sovereign over his glory. But he will, God alone will receive all glory. And that's what verses six to seven tells us. The, the reason why God uses Cyrus and strengthens him is for God's purpose. And God's greater purpose is that people would know one day that he alone is God. Here's, here's where we see it in verse 6. Why do you raise up Cyrus? Why do you strengthen and equip him? Verse 6, here's the purpose. That people may know. Which people? Just Israel? No, they always forget. Just Judah? No, not just Judah. It's too small of a thing to just save Judah. That people may know, all people, from the rising of the sun and from the west. So when you think about that, that's just symbolic language for absolute sovereignty. The sun rises in the east, sets in the west. We understand that here, right? So it's 
absolutely, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, absolute sovereignty, there is none besides me, Yahweh says. I am the Lord. There is no other. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. These are contrasting aspects of nature. That there's light and darkness, which we would usually look at that as good and evil, or even in physical terms, we're like light and darkness. They're polar opposites. And what Isaiah is saying is that God is completely sovereign over the polar opposites. He can use physical light and physical darkness for his purposes in nature. He could also use light, obviously, spiritual light. He could also use darkness, sinful people like Cyrus. God is completely sovereign. Look at the second clause of verse 7. I make well-being. Now, this word used for well-being, it's translated as well-being in the ESV, but it's actually the word shalom, which means peace, welfare, completeness. I make completeness. I make everlasting peace. I make goodness, God is saying. I make well-being and, and some of you don't want to hear this, I create calamity. God creates calamity for his purposes. We like the word ordained. I don't see a God who allows all these bad things to happen and says, oh man, why did that happen? Why did this nation invade that nation? That's horrible. People died. That's bad. Let me just interfere now and fix this. Ah, that's better. Then God comes over here. Oh, come on, Mother Nature. Why did you allow this? This is bad. I'm going to intervene now and fix this calamity. That's not a God who's sovereign. That's a God that's responsive. God who is sovereign, and I know you hate to hear this. God who is sovereign and says that, no, this is evil, but I'm using this, and no one is going to understand why until we get to heaven. I'm moving this guy here. This dictator thinks he's good. I'm using him here. And when people die, it's to remind them that we're finite. And, and there's no other but to turn to God. Repent or perish. And that's why you guys don't like to hear it. You can't say, God, is it because I'm not good enough? That's why you allowed me to suffer under this evil? No. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All will go to hell unless you turn your heart to Christ. But God is turning hearts. And we'll see that in a couple verses from now. And then he looks at natural disasters because you're looking at light and darkness as physical attributes there. And God's saying, I ordain the hurricane. I send the earthquake. There's nothing that happens in mother nature. There is no mother nature. I'm Yahweh. That's God. You might not like that, but tell me a better interpretation. I make well-being, so he gives you shalom. And that shalom that he gives you is the peace that you can experience even when the world around you is falling apart. Do you have that peace? You see warfare, you see evil, you, see, you, you may suffer disease, but do you have peace? The, the well-being that he gives you is in spite of the calamity that he creates. God ordains trials so that you will worship him, so that you will not grow proud, so that you will not become self-sufficient, so that you will recognize what? 
does it say that you're not the Lord, you're not in control, that you will recognize God saying, I am the Lord who does all these things. So you can sit there and say, God, why this happened to me by chance? Why is the stock market like this? Why did this happen to me? Why is this and this and this? Why aren't the Lakers winning? What is going on? And God's saying, you think I don't care, but I am in charge of everything. Until you recognize that I am the Lord, I'm going to keep doing these things. Look, God needs to create calamity because most of the world reject him. And the more people recognize that they're finite, because look, the funny thing is Judah does not even stay faithful to God, right? When Jesus comes, they reject their Messiah. Cyrus, how many of you, if you were Cyrus, would not immediately worship God? How is it? It boggles my mind. How is it? It's like, Cyrus, are you serious? Are you serious? That God talks to you and you don't bow to him and give your life to him as your Lord? That should be convicting to me and you. Because the only reason why we worship God, if Cyrus doesn't even worship God, and he knows that God's using him and blessing him, why do you worship Christ? It's only because God is sovereign over the election of your salvation. It's only because God's sovereign over us. Look, look at this. Let's skip to verse 22. It says, turn to me and be saved. Stop there for a second. But God, you're the one turning Cyrus's heart to do your will thinking that some of it is his, his will. You give us an entire chapter of how you're using an individual as your instrument. Then you lay it out that you're the only savior. You're the only, people who will, you're the only God who will save your people. Then you tell us to turn to you. If Cyrus doesn't recognize you, how do we turn to you? But it says, turn to me, and be saved. And we know the answer. And his name is Jesus Christ. It says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Why? For I am God, there's no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue and you're going to say, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No, no, no. Paul's not born yet. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. See, in a world of kings and rulers and conquerors, you swear your allegiance to, in the Roman Empire, Caesar. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Persia, Cyrus. But God is saying, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Yahweh is Lord. But here's the ironic thing. Here's the beauty of God, a God who delivers. What we see with Cyrus is a miniature of how God saves his people. Interesting that God raised up Cyrus so that Judah would not perish as a nation. As a result, Christ would eventually come out of Judah, 
But when Cyrus was king, most of the world bowed down to who? Who do you think? Come on. I know we're Baptists, but come on. Come on now. Talk to me. I just, we just, we're in Isaiah 45, Bible students. If you're not a believer in God, who are you bowing down to? What's his name? Cyrus. Who are the only people not bowing down to Cyrus in Isaiah? The people who are located where? Judah, in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah 8, after the temple is built, and Nehemiah brings the word. Isn't that ironic? That's how God works. The entire world is bowing down to Cyrus except for God's people. The entire world is afraid of Cyrus, and he is saying to God's people, you guys are the only ones. Don't you dare bow down to me. You bow down to Yahweh, but everybody else bow down to me. Isn't that beautiful? You, you, could, you could see this. You could see this, that God delivers his people. When Cyrus was king, everybody in the world bowed down to Cyrus while the people of Judah went home to Jerusalem to bow down to their Lord. Isn't that how God works? That when we worship God and the rest of the world worships some other power. Then one day, Paul becomes an apostle, right? Saul becomes Paul. And, and then now, Christians, you know, Philippians chapter 10, verse 11, borrows from Isaiah that in Isaiah where it said, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. There's still a king who is from Jerusalem. There's still a king who came from Judah. There's a lion of Judah, one from the line of David, who will save his people while the rest of the world bows down to other kings and other powers. There will be a people. And one day, though, it says, Jesus came down to earth, humbled himself, died on the cross, then was exalted unto heaven, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see that? In heaven, in, in the presence of God, on earth, one day, whoever's alive and under the earth, whoever's in hell. Every tongue confess, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To whose glory? Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Mm-mm-mm. Big idea. Our sovereign Christ fulfills history, his story, by using rulers and turning hearts. He turns hearts for his glory. He uses rulers, but he turns our hearts. He turns the hearts of his people for the sake of his glory. The only reason why you and I are saved is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. The only reason why we believe in Jesus Christ is because God, by, his, by the power of the Spirit, open our eyes to see him as king. Otherwise, we would not worship. This is all part of God's sovereignty. God chooses the plot. He writes the setting. He determines the climax. He foreshadows what is to come. He himself is the hero of his story. Jesus is the center of history. 
Christ is the center and glory of his story. And this is the God that we serve, a God who can use and will use any king or ruler like a tool or instrument, and a God who does not forget his own people. So when people stress out about who's going to be president or whatever's happening in Russia or whatever is happening in East Asia, and they're worried about this or that, we worship a God who is sovereign and on his throne. Why worry? Doesn't mean we're not concerned but our battles fought where? On our knees. Because the battle is the Lord's. When we fight, what does Phil Wickham say? We fight on our what? Knees. Right? He has that song. When we fight, we fight on our knees. Because the battle belongs to Yahweh, not, not anybody else. God predicted events that would occur 150 years later. And sure enough, 150 years later, prophecy came true. Applicationally, what this means is that when we study world history, it should strengthen our trust in the Word of God. The Bible is the perfect wisdom of God that eventually reveals the perfect wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. The Word of God is sovereign over history. That should strengthen your belief in Christianity, that the Bible, 100% accurate, 150 years earlier than actual history. So we must stop questioning God and doubting his control over this world. We must stop questioning God and doubting his control over our lives. If God is this sovereign over history and rulers and kings and over his own people, and if he receives all the glory, then we must stop questioning God. Stop doubting his control. Just read the word of God I know it's not easy, but we must surrender. Yearn for people to turn to God. That is the key exhortation we saw in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved. Yearn for people to turn to God and be saved. And if you haven't turned to God, turn to him. But know that the only reason why we turn to him is because he is turning our hearts. That's only by his grace and mercy. And so today we see in Isaiah 45 a perfect display of the sovereignty of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord, I invite you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. He came, Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the, on the first Easter Sunday. And if you repent, which means turn, if you turn to him and say, Lord, I confess you as Lord and Savior, and I repent, I confess my sin, I confess that I can't save myself, I turn to you. Will you change my heart? He will change your heart. He will cause that repentance, and he will be your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would turn hearts. There are some in here who are believers, but their hearts aren't turned to you. They are believers, but momentarily, by temptation, their hearts are turned on this world. They're worried about politics. They're worried about their money. They're worried about what they're going to eat. They're worried about material things. Father, I pray that they would repent. I pray that you would cause me to repent. There's so many things I'm afraid of in terms of the future of our church and the future of our world. 
I pray, Lord, that this passage would cause me to bow down on my knees as a lead pastor and surrender to you, trusting and not doubting you, that if you turned Cyrus, and if you turned for the sake of your people, that you are sovereign over not, this, our, not just our church, but every church, every true church. Father, I pray that you would bring repentance this morning among our people, people who claim to believe in you but have turned away from you temporarily. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would turn hearts. I pray, Lord, if there's, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that you would turn their hearts to your grace. Turn them now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship our Lord.